Broadcasting from occupied Congo land in Long Beach, California, this is Wait, Why Am I Talking? A show about local current events with a socialist slant. All right, how's everybody doing? This is Vic. Hello, everybody. This is Miles. Good morning. Hey, how you doing? I'm Jordan. And we have a guest today. Hey, Why don't you introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks for having me. My name is Lily Lucas. Nice to be here. Great to have you. Lily Lucas, could you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and your role in Long Beach? Sure. I've lived in Long Beach for about three years now. Um, I was born and raised in, in San Francisco and essentially, I think, am priced out for life, which is a whole other conversation, but it's sad. Same, I love that city. Same. Can't go yeah. back either. <laughs> you know, it has issues just like every city. Um, but I'm sad not to be there, but um, moved down to Long Beach. Ultimately, I felt like Long Beach had something similar to San Francisco, which is a, a strong sense of pride. Like when you say you're from San Francisco, we say with pride. When you say you're from Long Beach, you say with pride, like it has some um, character, personality or something that you're, you're proud of. So um, I liked that. I mean, that appealed to me. And then, you know, well, we can go into this, but it at least has the... Um, kind of the veil of being super LGBT uh, friendly. So that appealed me too. And so I've been there for three years. Um, I just finished my dissertation in US history in March, right before the shutdown. That's from UC Davis. Um, and the past couple of years, I've also been teaching at a local independent school in San Pedro. All right. Seems like you're pretty hooked up in the community in San Pedro, Long Beach. Me, myself, I just came five years. And I get that, what you're talking about. Like, there's a real sense of pride from Long Beach and everything. But you wrote an amazing article in Fourth Magazine. Is that how you say? I think it's for the, like, for the LBC. Got you. Got you. I it have... might be Fourth. You might want to check that. I thought it was for yeah. the also. But if you check on their website, it might be Fourth. Oh. I, f- I feel like it might be a play on the Fourth Estate. Not oh, sure, boy. you know, keeping, you know Matt, keeping everyone Miles, accountable. I, I love how Miles know. is always like, yeah, I think it actually refers back to what Leonard wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I always look at things like, how deep can I go here? You know, so. I mean, it could it be ambiguous for a reason. Who knows? That too. Like the way you start off the article is just sort of like pretty powerful. It's like, can white gay people in Long Beach be racist? Like, why did you start it off that way? Well, um, you know, the queer community really tries to organize around inclusivity. It organizes around the fact that we have not been included in certain spaces, in legislative rights. Um, And I just wanted to think a little bit more critically about that. To me, it's obvious that racism exists within the queer community, but I think because of this kind of outfacing message of striving for inclusivity or um, really there's also a, a language around family that um, because of that kind of outward message, the racism that exists gets looked over or some people might be surprised that it's there. Um, so I kind of wanted to call out immediately that racism does exist within the community and, and in doing so ultimately, you know, I thought of my audience as any white queer people in the city, 
Um, and I thought of my audience very specifically, I guess, as kind of white and gay men who historically, um, yes, have have been oppressed because of their queerness. At the same time, they have benefited from being both male and being white, benefited economically, benefited in a way that, um, you know, unless you choose to, your queerness can be invisible. Um, and so if they chose to hide their queerness, they would just be a white man. And so we all know that, you know, they have greater rights in that sense. So I yeah, I think I started that way just to firmly plant my stance to, and maybe even just to help myself remember who my audi- ultimate audience was for that article. Yeah. Great perspective to set it off. It caught my attention right away. And I was like, oh, I have to finish reading this. It's not one of those articles you just skim over, you know? Mm. Definitely. And it talks a lot about, like you said, the, um, you know, that struggle within the community with white supremacy and things of that nature. And specifically, unless I'm mistaken, this happened at like the Long Beach Pride March. Um, And recently you helped organize the Stonewall March that happened uh, last week. And I wanted to ask a little bit, like, how was that like a different event in terms of this issue, you know? Sure. I mean, I helped by volunteering. I just want to say that I didn't organize. It was organized by six to eight. um, I don't know them personally, but from afar, just beautiful um, queer people of color. And so the difference, let's see, what was was the other question? Basically, like how, um, like that event didn't have cops at it, you know, like how, how was that event different from regular pride, I guess, for our viewers, you know? So Long Beach has a really large pride parade. It's a parade that happens um, every year. It happens at the end of May. Because it's at the end of the May, it's kind of the first one of the season in the area. And I think it gets a lot of attention for that. The pride parade started in the 80s in Long Beach. And it was met when it started, it was met with some significant backlash, mostly from religious communities in the area, but also from the local police department, there were like counter protesters spewing, you know, hate under the guise of religious, whatever. Um, But also the police department forced the organizers of the first March to um, insure themselves for like up to a million dollars, which was way more than they forced other um, organizations to insure themselves for. So actually they, the organizers had like a last minute appeal in the courts to stop that so they could still hold their first march. So the pride itself is rooted in kind of police um, oppression in that sense, religious oppression. Um, the first prides had some pushback from the police and from religious communities but it grew over the years and it became this totally crazy thing like it has been in, in you know, everywhere, which is sponsored by um, so many corporations who want to um, partake in rainbow capitalism to try to either appease their bases, showing the off that they're, you know, liberal or whatever, or, um, or even directing themselves to, um, you know, the queer community specifically, like by Budweiser because Budweiser supports the community, which I'll go into alcohol later. But 
in the, so in this, in that span, what is that almost 30 years or whatever of um, parades in Long Beach, it's, it's been a somewhat exclusive, sorry, it's been a somewhat inclusive space. Some board members have been people of color. Um, people of color have been welcome. They've never been explicitly turned away, but um, at the same time, it's been somewhat of an exclusive space as well. For starters, the name for the longest time, they, the corporation running Pride was gay and lesbian Pride. So, you know, there's a, the queer community is like harnessing the power of language and labels change all the time. And for some people it's frustrating, but really I think it's really beautiful and powerful. So, you know, gay and lesbian was what you would call the queer community maybe in the 90s. But not anymore. Now we know that there's so much more than gay and lesbian, you know. And so they they changed their name finally to be more inclusive um, because gay and lesbian, for example, what about bisexuals? What about people who just identify as queer generally? What about transgender folks? What about two-spirited folks, you know, et cetera, et cetera, intersex or just questioning? So they rebranded themselves recently, like within the last couple of years. Um, but they, the corporation itself is run like a corporation. I mean, they spend a lot of money to go to um, conferences. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in these conferences, pride parade conferences, but you know, still lots of money on hotels on mm -hmm. taking almost like vacations to go to these conferences. Um, probably lots of wheeling and dealing that we don't even know about. Um, and who knows, like things can get petty. Like if someone, um, wants their float to be ahead of another one who knows, you know, who knows what's going down. <laughs> um, Definitely. So that, that's been going on for decades in the city. And then um, with COVID, COVID shut down parades across the country, pride parades across the country. Um, they were shut down before, many of them were shut down before George Floyd's, um, before he was murdered. And then once the Black Lives Matter movement started up again or gains attention from like lay folk um, and became bigger, because of course it, is, it had always been there for a while. Um, but once it gained momentum, uh, queer people of color in various cities were thinking about how they could reframe pride to kind of go back to its roots because the roots mm. of pride is a anniversary celebration or memorial or just remembrance of the Stonewall riots, which were led by um, transgender people of color, was led by street youth. So just um, not even working class, like, you know, not, ev not even able to be working class. Um, it was led by sex workers. It was led by mm. um, gender nonconforming peoples. And so, um, that's what happened here in Long Beach. There was a group of, yeah, I forget the number, but um, a small group of queer people of color who joined together and they labeled themselves Queer Pride for, oh God, I, I forget now. For Black Lives, right? Thank you, yeah. And But then they rebranded. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, they labeled themselves Queer Pride for Black Lives, which they've now rebranded as Queers Obliterating White Supremacy. So they put this together this event last Sunday and it was just, uh, it was the exact opposite of what had been going down for years. It was, there were zero corporations. There was no parade. Um, there was instead, there was a lot of kind of um, 
I don't know, community healing in a way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, Vic, you were there. Like, I don't know how you describe it. Well, well, yeah. What do you think? It was like definitely community healing stories of trauma and stories of overcoming trauma with empathy and love and understanding that like being queer, the trauma comes with it. There's a possible, there's more of a possibility of trauma when you identify as queer and trans and to see people up there, speak it, speak it loud and proud. And then the crowd eat it up. And also there was a budgetary aspect to it. At one point they were just going on and on about numbers, about the, how much the cops are getting of the budget and people are cheering <laughs> the numbers and going, yeah, like, yeah. Then Garcia's a little bitch. Garcia's a little bitch, bitch, bitch. I'm like, whoa, this is like all over the place. Like empathy, like love, like numbers, education. Fuck the police. Fuck Garcia. All that combined into one. Yeah, it was great. And there were children running around. I had, I was there with my daughter. It was a great experience. She talks about it all the time. Yeah. So it was a lot to take in. And I didn't know what to expect, honestly. But it was it was powerful. It was powerful. And I didn't know the correlation that BLM started by, you know, queer folks, like queer black folks. I had no idea to hear that on the stage like that. And I'm like, well, me, the socialist, is getting education right here, right now, like the rest of the crowd. And, yeah, it felt like an education session. And you mentioned is like that park was meant for that, you know? And we could start bringing that back as a point of education in Long Beach. It was powerful. And no cops were there. Yeah, it was held in, I don't even know what that's called, but there's like a forum space in Bixby Park. Um, and still, the only reference I have of anyone using that stage is maybe some musicians during um, the farmer's market. But I, I mean, to be fair, I just, I, I don't know, maybe stuff has happened and I just wasn't there, but I have no recollection. There's no like community memory that I've touched on yet where that's been, that space has been used for what the architecture anyways suggests it should be used for, which is a forum, which is like a Greek, you know, comes from the Greek idea of democracy where you can educate, you can hold space and, um, you know, build community and, and be political in that way. Um, it was a great use of that space. And it was, it was like an aha moment because the second they're up there and you're seeing it, you're like, why the hell hasn't this ever happened before? Yep. You know? Uh -huh. um, yeah, it was, it was a great space and they created great space and, and they did, I think, um, a, a particularly good job of starting off talking about how the space was um, stolen from native peoples. And um, I think that it's great that, you know, most people in organizing or in politics, well, maybe not mainstream politics, but huh. in politics now know to, to mention that before they start anything, but they went step, you know, they went steps further. They had like a blessing. They had a prayer. They had, um, they led us in a song to remember missing native women who apparently also the police don't care about. Not apparently. I mean, it's not surprising, but it was that kind of education because I hadn't thought of that, about that before, even though um, I could see it. Um, and talked about, you know, two spirit, like coalition building, um, 
So yeah, it was a great use of space and zero cops. Whereas in the past, you know, you know, it's just like they totally made you rethink what pride should be because the second you're there and you're, and you're looking at what, um, at what they created, you're like, how, how did we ever invite cops into pride? Like, like what? It's so antithetical to the whole purpose of it. Like how did that ever happen? Like, I yeah I associate Long Beach like in like socialist circles with kick cops out of pride stickers. There's several different variations of those stickers. And like that's like a kick the cops out of pride is like a culture almost. And I'm just like, how? How? Yeah. And then going to this event, zero cops, much different vibe. Zero cops, zero problems, right? Zero problems. I mean, there were cops in New York and there were problems. Zero mm-hmm. cops here and there were zero problems. It's almost like cops are the problem. And there's a new chant that sort of got started. And so I'm going to need y'all to follow along with me. You a, Garcia, you a bitch, you a bitch, you a big old bitch. <laughs> Gar- Robert Garcia, you a bitch, you a bitch, you a big old bitch. You did mention in your article, I believe, how the original Stone, Stonewall riots, as you mentioned here, were really um, led. The, the movement was led by the most oppressed, the most mm-hmm. oppressed of the queer community in, in New York. But yet we're asking the question now, how did how did the pride marches get to the point where now they're inviting cops, right? So I believe you did mention about some some of the white and head and and I guess male washing of the original Stonewall riots. Could you just talk a little bit about that history and and that co-option and and sort of how it occurred and how it's been portrayed? Yeah. Yeah, so the Stonewall riots happened in June of 1969. So you know, it's in this moment of time in the United States when there, you know, the public is is much more vocal and active. We've kind of um, at least, or how do I say this? You know, you have World War II and then you have this post-war like heavy push for white heteronormativity is the way to be. And if you do subscribe to that, you're going to be financially well off. So that's happening 50s into the 60s. And then you have this moment of social upheaval where people are starting to push back and be much more vocal. The civil rights movement is probably the most iconic of that. But there's a plenty of other stuff going on at that time, too. And so the Stonewall riot, riots happen, um, you know, a few years after the major legislative wins of the civil rights movement it happens in 1969. But it's still the ethos of it is still in that kind of liberation vocabulary one of the main political groups to come out of the Stonewall riots is the Gay Liberation Front. And they're calling for pure liberation. They're not calling for the stuff that has happened. They're not calling for um, gay marriage. They're not calling for gays to be accepted into the military. They're not calling for these kind of wins, which I put in parentheses, these wins that are really just um, complacent, you know, holding up the status quo. They're not calling for that. The Gay Liberation Front was calling for one of their statements. They said, quote, we are a revolutionary homosexual group of men and women formed with the realization that complete sexual liberation for all people cannot come about unless existing social institutions are abolished. We reject society's attempt to impose sexual roles and definitions of our culture. 
We are stepping outside these roles and simplistic myths. We are going to be who we are. At the same time, we are creating new social forms and relations, that is, relations based upon brotherhood, cooperation, human love, and uninhibited sexuality. Babylon has forced us to commit ourselves to one thing, revolution. We identify ourselves with all the oppressed, the Vietnamese struggle, the third world, the blacks, the workers, all those oppressed by this rotten, dirty, vile, fucked up capitalist conspiracy. Wow. So, yeah. So that's a powerful statement. That's super powerful. Wow. Right? Like, that's the ethos that's coming out of Stonewall. That's politically what's coming out of Stonewall. And then all of a sudden, you know, like like Miles was saying, and then all of a sudden, you know, we've ended up with kind of like a white man washing of the event. So I think part of the reason why that's been erased, why, you know, you may not hear about that unless you happen to take a history course with like a woke professor who even wants to bring up, you know, LGBT history. But the reason why you may may not hear about that is probably a convergence of two things. One, um, just general politics in the United States that, you know, regardless if it's Republican or or Democrat, it's, it's moving towards the center, you know, and so the center doesn't want to talk about third world. Um, liberation, you know, because um, they benefit the center benefits off capitalism and the capitalism likes the third world to be oppressed, etc. That's yeah. Um, so part of it's probably that just an erasure of radical politics in the United States. But the other thing that happened um, to the memory of Stonewall is that it was it has been whitewashed. Um, it's been literally whitewashed in film. There was a, a film called Stonewall that came out a few years ago, yeah. 2015, I think. Uh-huh. And I actually, I never saw it, but you can read all about it. And mostly what you'll read is the critique. Maybe you'll read people standing up for it, but I bet the people standing up for it are white gay men. But essentially, so we know historically, we know as fact that the riots were started by uh, trans people of color, were started by sex workers, were started by houseless people, youths were started by people who don't own the means of production, people who are just um, completely marginalized. And yet um, this movie was put out, people who do own the means of production, the producers, white men, the director, you know, gay white man, some of the producers could be gay as well. I didn't look that far into it, but probably some of them might've been white gay men as well. And they changed the entire narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, They, you know, they, they, Centered the story on a, on a white boy from the Midwest who yeah. was not queer in the sense of queer as not just about your sexuality, but queer as like um, pushing back against societal norms. He was not queer. He was like very straight male, you know, mm. could have been your high school football, you know, jock, which whatever high school football players are gay too, but they, they made a very conscious decision to um, cast him as a lead character. And they went so far as to, as to suggest to show that he, this white gay boy was the one who threw the first brick at the cops and in essence started the riots. And it's just not true. It's just not true. So if it's not true, then there's a conscious decision to, you know, to ignore historical fact. And so you have to question where did that conscious decision come from? To make money. Yeah. It's a more yeah. sellable story. <laughs> Having a, you know, a nice, pretty-looking white boy throw that first brick. I, yeah. Totally. 
you had talked about how like this this the energy and social atmosphere of this this Stonewall March was very different from the regular Pride. Mm. You know, we we talk about the term rainbow washing and how Pride in Long Beach, at least in the modern day, is like a very profitable event for well, not profitable, but like corporations are involved, things like that. It's mm-hmm. it's like you said, a parade. It's kind of a party. How did this uh, this event kind of felt different? How could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The, yeah. The parades were definitely meant to be a party. I mean, parade, all parades. Well, no, <laughs> but yeah, the parade was definitely meant to be um, a party. You know, the, the parades of past are a bunch of floats coming by and, and you would kind of watch and um, cheer them on. And if there was a particular group that you really liked, you know, you might cheer louder for them and um, people would kind of perform as they walked, whether it's bands or dancing or, you know, just um, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> it's so crazy to think about how normalized that was. Now it seems so bizarre, but, yep. um, you know, and, and growing up in San Francisco, it's the same thing. It, it felt more packed in San Francisco because of the layout, but the way that they do it in Long Beach, it's a little bit more spread out, which is also kind of nice depending on what you like, but same thing, same thing in New York, same thing anywhere, um, where it's kind of parade people line up to watch it and cheer. Um, and then sometimes at the end of the parade, there's more action going on. But I would characterize it as kind of like lots of color, um, lots of loud music, lots of like screaming, lots of like um, lots of visual stimuli and lots of kind of actions by the crowd and by the parade that all point point towards um, not being present in not so, being present, maybe in like. I don't know what sense I mean that. A, a parade to me speaks of like spectacle. Does that make sense? Like all these people in the parade, they, they have a procession and it's, and it's a spectacle. Spectacle is a great word. And, yeah. And it, not present where it's just sort of happening around you and you can't really recall a certain moment from it. You know what I mean? And if you do, it's just like a visual stimuli. But I think it is what happened uh, with the... Uh, Stonewall anniversary, it was just a whole feeling. I just thinking about it, just a rush of emotions come back. And then just thinking of all the things I learned, just literally just learned, which mm-hmm. I did not know, just straight up like facts. So like I'm learning new things. And then thinking that I was really enthused about defunding the police. And I'm really knowledgeable because, you know, I'm a good socialist and I have, I do my research, I do my reading. And when it comes down to defund the police, I'm like, yeah, defund the police. But I'm not the loudest person there by far. By far. Everyone is screaming even louder than I am. And I'm just like, oh, okay. So it's not only me. And this is, that is just so powerful. So many different things in so many different directions. And again, with no cops. This is, did anyone feel threatened? <laughs> Did anyone like just no. surrounded by love with all those people? Uh-huh. I, yeah. I like Vic, how you keep bringing it back to education. I mean, that's um, certainly education is something that I have no recollection being a part of um, the spectacle of, of the parade in the past. And so, a sh- you know, a focus from spectacle towards education is also kind of a focus of your participation in the event. Your participation mm-hmm. in a spectacle is somewhat passive. Yes. Um, it's entertainment. And entertainment is 
fine. You know, like you can entertain yourself. You enjoy life. It's fine. But entertainment um, asks you in a way to participate only by leaving reality for a second or leaving mm. your troubles, you know, behind you. And that's why many, you know, whatever. So many forms of entertainment are about that, are about kind of um, leaving reality just for a moment. And and that can be helpful. It can be, it, you know, if you're really hurting, um, it's nice to leave some of your troubles behind for a second. And, there, you know, there was still parade in the past, like you're leaving your troubles behind towards a goal of seeing all these people out to support you. Like it wasn't incredibly negative, but in comparison, by contrast, all of a sudden, you know, you're thinking, what? Like, why was I participating in a commemoration of people putting their lives on the line to fight back against the state by, you know, standing or sitting on the sidelines as a mm -hmm. passive participant yeah. in a spectacle? I mean, right. Right. I don't know so, how we did that. Our motherfucking city! Y'all are so beautiful and powerful, and I appreciate each and every one of you being out here, and I appreciate each and every one of you who are listening online and can't join us. Make some noise, y'all! Something, uh, so you, the, from the quote you read us, it was very anti-capitalist. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, I think, I think like this transition to spectacle over time is very capitalist because capitalist, capitalism wants that alienation to occur, right? Whereas opposed to what you've, you, Vic, and I think Jordan was there too, were describing, it sounds like the vibe of this event was engagement um, uh, and positive confrontation with the realities of, of, cap, of how capitalism intersects with all these different things nope, and, nope. And, and leads to our oppression. Um, you could give us your thoughts about rainbow capitalism specifically. Mm -hmm. And I know we've sort of been skirted, talking about this already a little bit with like pride and how it's corporate sponsored and all that, but maybe uh, some additional thoughts exactly towards with the like the systemic lens yeah please. as socialists and you know maybe a socialist alternative yeah because that's this is the first time i've heard the term rainbow capitalism but i know exactly what it is as soon as you say it. you know what i mean i think i do yeah um okay before i had some a thought but miles you just said something about um you just said something about Specifically, rainbow well, capitalism. Yeah, I will speak on that. But you said something interesting before that that I wanted to speak on. Something about um, capitalism and the spectacle versus engagement or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's that it seems like there's been this general transition uh, that cap uh, capitalism specifically seems to take a lot of social movements mm -hmm. and, and all these movements that are really aiming for systemic change. Because the quote you read is, Hell, those activists at Stonewall, they were not 
aiming for for what wins the queer community has gotten under capitalism. So at least to me, it seems like a transition to spectacle is in the interests of capitalism and is Mm -hmm. part of, at least in this specific instance, rainbow capitalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the gist of what I said. I don't know if that helped. You said positive engagement. That's what really caught me, that this event was like positive engagement. Right. Yeah, versus passive. Um, It's interesting to think about the connection between capitalism and spectacle. I think that it makes me think how the capitalist gears that are like the capitalist gears that are turning and producing these pride events and which these pride events kind of um, move on top of those gears, capitalist gears are somewhat obfuscated by the fact that it is a spectacle, but it's, it's free. So there's no participant, you know, changing of money. So you don't see it as someone's making money off of this. You don't see it as I'm contributing to the capitalist machine in some way because it is is free. It's almost like a right, like that must be a way of mm-hmm. making the capitalist, you know, undertones or the capitalist machine that's pushing it more invisible. I, I want to just add to this. Are, or- people are benefiting, right? I mean, the city yeah, benefits. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So that somewhere down the line, money is made and mostly probably from cap, well, from corporate sponsorship. Yep. So that money is going somewhere. Yeah. Well, I mean, spectacle attracts people. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. To the city. Right. And then tax dollars and all that, yeah. which, you know, those tax dollars are, I don't know the statistics, but the extent to which they're going straight into, yeah, you know, uplifting. Yeah. They're probably going to cops, <laughs> not going to the queer community. Right. Yep. So, uh-huh. uh, yeah, yeah. And and I just want to say, uh, uh, typically around Pride, there's extra police aggression towards the homeless community to push mm. them out of where Pride will be, the, the corporate Pride. Mm. Yeah. God forbid we see social inequity, you know. But again, it's that push towards like, it's that push towards a feeling. It's like a euphoric, it's like tr- the spectacle. It's a push towards a euphoric release of reality in this spectacle of inclusivity Hmm. but it's not rooted in reality so yeah you know yeah don't want to see the homeless so rainbow capitalism there are two things well there are two things i'll talk about rainbow capitalism another one is pink washing or jordan said rainbow washing i'm sure that works too it's the same idea so rainbow capitalism is what we see when major corporations who are selling products already continue to sell those products branded under sometimes literally a rainbow, but branded under the idea of support for the queer community. So um, it can come about in several ways. One is the literal branding of a rainbow on the product. You see it a lot with alcoholism, um, which I do want to touch on eventually, but you see it a lot with alcoholism. And then you also can see rainbow capitalism um, through advertisements that come out um, that try to show how the corporation supports LGBTQ rights or just um, signing on as a contributor, as an underwriter of, you know, a pride parade. So, yeah, hold on one second. This would be interesting. Long Beach. Pride. I wonder who. Are you looking up who sponsors? Yeah, who who sponsored last year? Ooh. Um, yeah, 
last year. Wow, they like actually it. have the 2020 stuff up. They never put up a cancellation. Oh, still? What's on there? It says May 2020. Uh, the Pride yeah, website found, is taking I've, me to a virus website. Uh, it's whoever finds it first, just you know, just kind of highlight that. What in the world? Corporate. It is taking me to a virus. What's happening? <laughs> What in the this world? Is more corrupt than we thought. You know? <laughs> well, we know it's Budweiser. Like I could just sort of name off the top of my head. The website, one of the top headers under right next to Parade is literally sponsors. Yeah, mm-hmm. sponsors: Bud Light, Nissan, Port of Long Beach, Wells Fargo, Estrella, Estella Jalisco, Verizon, Smirnoff, Smirnoff with a rainbow. There you SoCal see it. Edison. There's a bunch of rainbows. Oh my god! Let me just send you send you all the link here. We could all look at it together. And like this is like that woke politics that people critique the left for, you know? And it's a valid critique because, like, like what is that? <laughs> Let's go to read that statement of liberation, and now we're here and just have the sponsorships just lined up. It's just. Oof. And and Disney's on here. Oh, my Disney just, mm. I found my favorite Raytheon. Raytheon. Woo. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, I, this can't be surprising, but and I'll say it anyways. The function of rainbow capitalism. So yeah. So these corporations that are sponsoring Pride, as an actual corporation, you know, how much are they actually doing for? For the pride community, sorry, for the queer community, how much are they doing for workers who um, are queer and therefore face certain challenges that come with that? How much are they doing to dismantle any system anywhere? The, you know, the focus of rainbow capitalism is probably twofold. One, it's to try to get the queer community to buy their things, or two, trying to get the liberal community to sign on to this corporation as like a good in quotes, a good corporation, and okay. therefore also buy their things. So it's it's all driven towards profit. So really, you have to see it as manipulation, like all advertising is. Um, and it's manipulation of, it's manipulation of oppressed people. Oof. And the queer community is not the only one. I mean, you see Nike ads. I remember a Nike ad that came out that showed um, women athletes and they, they someone it showed women athletes and the audio was a reading of Langston Hughes uh, famous poem, a dream deferred. And it builds up to this kind of emotional crescendo, this idea that like, so if you break it down, it's this idea of if you buy Nike, you're supporting black rights. Or if you buy Nike, you're supporting black female athletes. I mean, I don't even know once you start breaking down advertisements, it's insane. But again, it's like, it's co-opting an, a feeling it's co-opting a feeling of um, pride or a feeling of um, empowerment or whatever that feeling is that oppressed people feel when they start to um, gain more rights or consciousness. It's co-opting that. And for the sole purpose of trying to sell for the sole purpose of trying to make profit, there was another one. I don't remember if it was Nike or was it Gillette? Anyways, you see stuff that, that, that tried to tap into the Me Too mo- movement, broadly speaking, like women reclaiming um, their voices against male oppressors. So there's advertisements trying to tap into that as well. Um, and, and But you have to remember, even if it makes you feel good for a second, you still have to remember that it's an advertisement. The point is, is to sell, to make money. 
And the fact that they made you feel anything is a manipulation. It's calculated and it's trying to get you to emotion buy or trying to get you to um, emotion support this corporation. No doubt. I'm going to take that with me to and dole it out to be like, yo, this is just pure manipulation. Rainbow capitalism, like they're, again, they're fucking with your head. Like, you know, they're fucking with your emotions. They go into the core of what you're standing for and they're turning that into like a spectacle and throwing a rainbow on it and sponsorship and moving on, like you said, laid upon the gears to now we don't see the gears. We just see the spectacle. And every and everyone has a rainbow on and we could move on. And Oof. and countries or cities, I mean small states, big states, use this as well in a slightly different way, a thing called pinkwashing. Um, pinkwashing is when you portray a city or a country as being, it's when a city or a state or a country portrays itself as being particularly welcoming to the LGBTQ community in order to cover up all the other civil rights abuses that are going on in that country. So um, speaking of countries, like there's a lot of pushback on Israel for being a a big um, pink washer and the abolitionist Dean Spade made a documentary on it that you can kind of go further into with that. But um, so especially, you know, I don't, this is a totally different podcast for whatever reason, Republicans are friends of Israel, all maybe always, but especially all of a sudden, I can't even get into that. And maybe you'll yeah, get, there's, some, a, there's a lot there. There's a yeah, lot there. There's a lot there. And so you might, you might, you might find slightly more sympathetic ears in the democratic party and the Democrats are, you know, a party that broadly speaking superficially supports um, LGBTQ rights, especially vis-a-vis the conservative party. And so if you might have some ears that are sympathetic to Palestinian liberation in the Democratic Democratic Party, then you can see Israel's choice, like the tourism board, to kind of um, put out stories, images, um, put out their own parade and amplify it to show that we are a liberal place. We will accept your LGBTQ, you know, your queerness or whatever. It could kind of try to be a way to pull um, people from the American left towards supporting Israel or, or at least not thinking, oh, they're not such a bad guy. Like they, at least they allow queer people to exist because, you know, in Egypt or Saudi Arabia, they don't. And so therefore Israel is better. So it like super, super oversimplifies the problem, but um, that's essentially what pinkwashing is. And you can see it on a smaller scale. You can see it in Long Beach, for example, Mayor Robert Garcia on his Facebook page um, after Trump signed whatever it was that excluded trans people from healthcare rights, he said something like, "The Long Beach community will always stand with tr- with the trans community. Will always always be here to support the trans community." I wish I had the exact quote, but whatever. Um, he said something to that effect, and to some extent, yes. I think when you're trying, when you put it on like a on a scale, like maybe Long Beach is better for a trans person than somewhere else. But that doesn't mean that it that it still has its own problems. And the police's treatment of transgender folks in the city, there are some lawsuits that are still open by trans women against the LBPD and against the Long Beach jail. 
you know, so Garcia is saying publicly, and he's a gay mayor, he's saying publicly Long Beach is an inclusive space. We're here to support our trans folks. And he's getting all these positive comments in reaction to his Facebook post. And this is happening at the same time that there are ongoing lawsuits against the LBPD for harassing trans women. And this is going on at the same time as trans people are, um, are like one of the most oppressed people, especially black trans women are the most oppressed people maybe in um, the United States, at least when it comes to violence. So you can see kind of like echoes of pinkwashing even in our own city. And, and it gets really complicated because our mayor is gay. So it, he lends more like credence to them. Well, that's, <laughs> that's an interesting point you make, uh, the pinkwashing to build not a national identity, but like a city identity and profit for, you know, like bring business. And the, the mayor specifically, I don't think, unless I'm mistaken, you mentioned this in any of your articles, but he is a big booster of the Cindy Allen campaign who has, mm in my opinion, a platonic ideal of pinkwashing because from my understanding, Cindy Allen was a vice squad cop in the 80s and uh, that's a whole separate podcast about what uh, LBPD was doing to the gay community in the 80s on the vice squad and she dismissed all the criticism of her police record and like candidacy as like, well, I have gay staff and I like gay people. Like that was, that was the level we were dealing with there. Yeah. But to me that that pinkwashing is political on a local level as well. That sounds like, you know, that book, White Fragility, that sounds like straight fragility or something like that. But I know, but I know queer straight people. Fragility. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's write it. We can, straight I'm, fragility. <laughs> we can make millions consulting, you know, and different corporations cash out. <laughs> yeah, but a straight person would have to write it. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because we're uh, coming up on time, these are sure. these are really good discussions. But um, is there anything else we want to cover? Or you want to say? Yeah. This goes back to things we were talking about earlier. But um, I think for me, one of the most powerful things—well, not the one of the most—but for me, one powerful thing about the Stonewall anniversary that happened um, last week was the absence of the spectacle and also kind of with that, the absence of alcohol. And I think that, um, you know, and this isn't some like bourgeois thing that you shouldn't drink too much. Like if you want to party, party, that's fine. But I just want to think critically about um, the role of alcohol in the queer community. So I think that it's not surprising that a lot of the corporations that support Pride are alcohol companies, like you mentioned, Smirnoff, beer companies, whatever. So many. Um, I think that because of the struggle to exist in a predominantly straight world, like the struggle of being queer is real, regardless of your race, regardless of your gender. And I think that one way to one way to cope is to drink. And so you can see a lot of alcoholism or not even that, but just a lot of heavy drinking in um, all communities of oppressed peoples. And I just worry about the extent to which once it starts getting sponsored by alcohol companies, oh. like do you start, can't you start seeing it as, as another form of oppression? Like let's throw yeah. more alcohol down yeah. your throat so that you don't, 
you know? And so, and so part of it is like the, the sponsorship from alcohol companies, but the other one is just the partaking in the spectacle as an, as a reason to drink, which is what a lot of national holidays are. So that's a separate issue. Well, maybe it's just national holidays around the summertime. Anyways. Yeah. Cause you had said, uh, you had mentioned that this felt different because you woke up without a hangover Yeah. after this event and it felt much more clear to you, you know? Yeah. I mean, as far as I saw, no one was openly drinking, whereas people will be openly drinking during pride parade. You know, it might be in a cup, but people are drinking. It's part of the spectacle. It's part of that kind of participation, which is a participation of further removing yourself from reality. Right. Um, so there was much more presence at the Stonewall anniversary. There was a lot. I mean, I didn't see any, maybe it was there, but whatever. On the whole, I didn't see um, a whole lot of alcohol consumption. Like, And so I think that that was like, an, that's indicative of the level of presence that people were willing to um, participate in, the level of engagement, positive engagement that people were willing to, to try to push themselves to do in, in that space. And it, it's probably partially a space that was created. I mean, it was pretty clearly like an educational open public forum. And so you came to the space um, with this idea that you were going to learn and that was your form of participation. And to learn, you have to be more present, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't wake up hungover. There were, and, and people weren't acting up because they were drunk. And, and so you woke up the next morning with, well, I, I guess, I mean, I haven't, I haven't drinking in years, mainly because it's like a pushback against, it's a pushback against, yeah, this outlet that I took to not be in my body, to not a address and understand my own queerness to, it was like a, a easy outlet for disassociation with my body, with myself, with my identity, whatever. So I've chosen not to drink for a couple of years now. But I could imagine my previous self participating by drinking, you know, and being hung over the next day. And then the attentions kind of switched from what happened and more towards your immediate pain. And that's probably symbolic of a larger pain that you're feeling that you are, you know, further fueling um, with drink. So, yeah, I mean, it's not I'm not trying to say don't drink. I just think that the that the that's also a part of the contrast to consider and what potentially it means for corporations, specifically alcohol corporations to be like huge sponsors or supporters of like sponsor is a positive word, right? So they're trying to maybe, I don't know, Sponsor maybe it depends with alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> well, you put um, it well when you said that, you know, entertainment is fine and it's good to have entertainment, but it's like pride mutated into more of an escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in, and entertainment in and of itself for its own purpose rather than like for the liberation of queer people. Yeah. And um, the lady or the person, is her first name Tanya, but also went by the future? Yeah. Yeah. Future. Woof. Uh, Amazing orator. Oh, Amazing man. orator. I will never forget in front of Garcia's house. Never forget. Yeah. Never forget. Chills. Oh, Chills. Chills, Chills right up. Now. The humility. Everyone's fine. Yeah, right now. Power. Right? Like, just, ah. Uh. So they said something that was, that really got me thinking. They said, 
it's oh fuck. They said like, what did help me out? They said something like, um, if you don't use your pain, your pain uses you. That might have been it. So they said, yes, yes, yes. Uh You have to embrace the pain because the pain is what makes you who you are. And that's part of you, who you are also. And just like your queerness, your pain and everything, that's the combination of who you are. Uh, I said the same thing. I mean, they said the same thing in front of Garcia's house. Yeah. So that seems like that's an interesting take on this difference between like the spectacle of inclusivity which brings about a certain joy but what if that inclusivity is really more superficial than we think you know it it doesn't call you to to call it into question versus um versus versus like an engagement with your pain and an engagement with your pain that is facilitated in such a wonderful way that it's really engagement with your pain towards healing no one's trying to profit from your pain in that space no one's trying to manipulate you through your pain in that space. And, and also people are, fer- people are feeling very different levels of pain um, and it's much more personal. And so I think you kind of resist maybe that nationalistic pain. Like, mm. you know, I don't know. I'm thinking about what Miles is saying, the spectacle building off emotion. So it's like building off emotion, but in a different way. Mm. I just want to say, like, I think a lot of what you're, you've been talking about is related to trauma mm-hmm. and how capitalism uses alcohol, especially um, as a way to alienate people from their trauma and not address it. And I'm thinking of like the trope of the working man coming home and having some beer, right? Or the working person, sorry, coming home and having some beer. Um, and I think maybe what we're talking about is similar. Yeah. Yeah, I personally, I stopped drinking. And ever since I stopped drinking, it caused me to like, you know, look internally and to realize to be like, oh, this was the way I describe it. It's like a glove. If you put a glove on, you could still use your hand, but you can't make fine motor movements like picking Mm. up tiny screws, you know, so like you're never quite using your body to its fullest potential your brain your muscles stretches whatever you use your body for you're constantly drunk or you know recovering from a hangover yeah i like that metaphor um definitely yeah i think that's to think about yeah (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. i think this is yeah there i feel like a lot of what you have said it's given a lot to think about today um i want to have a whole conversation about (laughs) the role because i mean drugs have been used traditionally by humans in positive ways it feels like under capitalism in a lot of ways it's just you know we're self-medicating yeah so i I feel like throughout this entire interview uh we've had a lot of stuff where like man we could do a whole episode on that so i really (laughs) i really appreciate you coming on today lily lucas this has been Mm -hmm. really great thank you yeah i've enjoyed it as well yeah thank you so much uh, it's been a great conversation. Let's shout out the article on for the or for fourth or up for debate. <laughs> All right, that's up for debate. It could be both. It could uh-huh. be both. Check out fourth dot org. Excuse me, rethinking queer intersectionality in Long Beach. It's a great article. Like it captures you. Go check it out, please. All right, I think that's it. Thank you very much, Thank you Lily. All. Much appreciated. And you'll be back, right? Yeah. Awesome. I'll be around. I'm not going anywhere. Awesome. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Miles. I'm Vic. I'm Jordan. And don't forget to ask yourself, why am I talking?